Good morning. The title given to the sermon this morning is a sermon for the ages. It means a sermon that has lasting relevance throughout the ages. And I have uh, retained this title because what we're going to hear from Stephen is indeed a sermon for the ages. The title is not saying the sermon I'm going to preach is a sermon for the ages. It is talking about the speech of Stephen, recorded in Acts 7. Now, we just heard from the scripture reading that Stephen was arrested and brought before the council, the Jewish court. He was arrested because some useless fellows stirred up the people and the leaders, saying Stephen was speaking against Moses and against God. That would be serious. But when he was actually brought to court, the charges were milder. The charges were he was speaking against the temple and against the law. But actually they are related. To speak against a temple is to speak against God. To speak against the law is to speak against Moses. But we are told these are false charges from false witnesses. So when we look at the speech of Stephen later on, if we really superficially, it gives the impression that Stephen was not really responding to the charges. Seems not relevant even for the occasion, let alone relevant for the ages. But as you shall see, Stephen's speech is relevant for the ages and for us today. And by the time I say, Amen, this morning, I believe we will recognize that this speech must have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Take a closer look at the charges. Specifically, they said, Stephen preached that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs given by Moses. This is false. Stephen would not have said that because Jesus never, never said he would destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. What Jesus actually said was, destroy this temple, referring to his own body. But Jesus did predict that the temple will be destroyed by the Romans, not by him. So in a sense, Jesus did speak against the temple because he predicted that it will be destroyed. And how can it be? It is God's temple. To say God's temple is destroyed can be problematic. And more, moreover, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and we will be endured by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus teaches that the temple will be replaced by the church. God, instead of dwelling in the temple, will dwell in the church. The temple will be obsolete, will be replaced. If that is the case, that means the temple services, the sacrificial system will be obsolete. And in that sense, it is speaking against Moses. Jesus never said he will alter 
what Moses has given. He actually said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But in fulfilling it, the temple became obsolete. So that must be the preaching of Stephen. Stephen must have preached. When the Messiah comes, the temple and the services will be obsolete. So in a sense, he did speak against the temple and the law, but not as the way they frame the charges. So whatever it was, most uh, Stephen did not try to defend himself against the false charges. They are false charges anyway, but defend his preaching. In the process, he defends the Christian faith. When the Messiah comes, the temple will be done away with. God, instead of dwelling in the temple, dwells in the believers, the church. That is the Christian faith. And that is what Stephen was defending. He ignored the false charges. So in the process, he was not getting himself acquitted. He was getting his audience implicated for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So this is how he defends his preaching. Number one, he will show that God never intended the temple to be a permanent place for his dwelling place. So this will defend the idea that God will move on. The temple will be replaced by the church, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he will defend that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the Jews would not object to the teaching that when the Messiah comes, things will change, including concerning the temple. The problem is they do not believe Jesus as the Messiah. So two things. God never intended the temple to be permanent. It will be replaced when the Messiah comes. And Jesus is the Messiah. So let us look at how he defends these two prongs. His speech is long. We will not read through the whole thing one shot. It will be too long. So I will pick most of it relevant to his argument for the purpose of this morning. So let's begin with the beginning of the speech. Acts 7 to the 3. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Note, Stephen said, God appeared to their father Abraham in Mesopotamia, not in Israel. In other words, God's presence was there in Mesopotamia. God was not limited to Israel, the Holy Land. God manifested himself far away in Mesopotamia. And then he talked about Joseph in the Acts 7, 9 to 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Note, God was with Joseph where? 
in Canaan, in Israel? No, in Egypt. So God manifested himself. God was real. God's presence was with Joseph in Egypt. And he was active there. He made Joseph ruler of Egypt. In other words, God was not limited to the promised land, to Canaan. He was there in Egypt. He actually manifested himself and worked in Egypt. And then he talked about Moses. When Moses was shepherding flocks in the wilderness in Acts 7, 30 to 33. Now an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off your, your sandals for your feet, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy land. Now here, where did God appear to Moses? In Israel? In Canaan? No. In the wilderness, Mount Sinai. And what is important here, God said, you are standing on holy ground. Well, they thought the holy ground is only the holy land. But here, in the wilderness, God said, this is holy ground. You see, God is not limited to one location, one place. He can be everywhere. He can manifest himself anywhere. And wherever he manifests himself, that is holy ground. That is temple. Now, even when God began to manifest himself within a, a, a kind of building, a structure, it was not a fixed building. Look at Acts 2, 44 to 47. Our father had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So you see, when God began to manifest himself in a kind of building, a structure, it was not a fixed building. It was a tent, a movable tent. A tent that could be uh, move about, movable. And it was so until the time of David in the wilderness, brought in by Joshua. And then it was so until the time of David. David wanted to build a fixed building. But it was not him, it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now, God did manifest himself tangibly in the building, the temple that Solomon built. We read when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God filled the temple, just like he filled the tabernacle after Moses constructed it. So God accepted the temple as a place for his dwelling. He consecrated it. He filled it. So God was there, manifested there. So did Stephen say anything that is against the temple? No. 
But Stephen goes on in Acts chapter 7, 48 to 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Yes, Stephen recognized that God accepted the temple. He manifested himself. He's glory through the temple. Yet he says, the Most High does not dwell in houses. Now, this was not his own, his own opinion. He quoted the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66. It's God himself says, heaven is my throne. That is where I really dwell. Earth is my footstool. I don't really dwell there. I made all these things. So Stephen goes so far to say, not only God is not limited in one place, he does not even dwell in a building, in the temple. Now he's quoting Isaiah. Their scripture, they cannot argue with Stephen. So now if God does not really dwell in the temple, was God really with them, present with them in the temple? Well, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he made a wonderful prayer. At one point of the prayer, in 1 Kings 8, 27 to 30, this is what he said. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, which you have said, my name shall be there that you may listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. You see, Solomon himself, the one who built a temple, said, does God really dwell on earth, let alone in the temple? Because God is the greater God. The highest heaven cannot contain him. He realized that heaven is God's dwelling place. Yet he said, Lord, you have said you will put your name here. Then therefore, hear our prayers when we pray towards this place. Now what is happening here? This is a very, very important theological truth here. God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, in the beginning, before he created the heavens and the earth, there was really nothing, no space, no time. Only God exists. And God created heaven, the heavens and earth, the universe, space and time. God is beyond and distinct from the universe. The creator God. The majestic God. He could not be contained in any place, let alone a temple. But Solomon revealed, God revealed to Solomon, what is really in the temple is his name. What does that mean? The name of God represents who he is. 
What do you mean is this? God is not actually dwelling in the temple. Nothing can contain him. But he was essentially dwelling there. He is not actually dwelling there. He is essentially dwelling there. Because his name is there. His name represents who he is. And therefore, when they pray towards the place where God's name is, it is the same as he is praying to God because God is essentially there. This is important to give us a proper perception of our God because the temple has been replaced by the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, nothing can contain God. Even the temple of the Holy Spirit cannot fully contain God. The God's name is there. On the one hand, we see God as the creator God, that nothing can contain him. He's everywhere. At the same time, as we see how God manifested himself to Abraham, to Joseph, to Moses, and the tabernacle and the temple, it gives us an idea that even though God is a creator, nothing can contain him, yet he can be rich wherever we are. He is real wherever we are. Only the Bible teaches a God that is both above and beyond the universe and yet actively working manifesting himself within the universe. Therefore, this aspect of the sermon of Stephen help us capture vividly, concretely, how we can relate to a God who is invisible, who is the creator, who the highest heaven cannot contain him, and yet we can have personal connection to this God. And when we pray to him, he is there with us. He hears. Wonderful speech, wonderful sermon to help us conceptualize how to relate to this God. So, If this is God, what is wrong with saying when the Messiah comes, the temple will be replaced? After all, the prophets have prophesied about a new covenant to replace the old covenant. The problem is, has the Messiah come? The problem with the Jews is not that they don't believe the Messiah will come, things will change. The problem was they refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah, despite all the miracles that Jesus performed, despite demonstrating that he fulfilled the prophecies, as we saw in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, which I preach on 
some time ago. So Stephen had to deal with this aspect of the problem. So we need to backtrack and go back to the beginning of the speech and look at X7 to the 7. Actually, what is shown on the slide is only X5 to 7, but we need 2 to 4 to get the context. Remember, God called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia to leave his land, to leave his, leave his relatives and go to a place God will show him and he turned out to be Canaan. When he was in Canaan, this is what Stephen said, yet he, God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring will be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But God said, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place, Canaan. So God promised Abraham, though he had no land at that point in time, God promised that he and his descendants will possess that land. But before that, God said, they will be sojourners in a foreign land. That turned out to be Egypt. They will be enslaved and afflicted. They were there 400 years, not afflicted for 400 years. The affliction came towards the end. And then they will come out of this place. And what Stephen going to say next concerned Joseph and Moses. We already saw part of it then. God would use Joseph to bring them into Egypt to fulfill this plan. And God will use Moses to bring them out to fulfill the promise. So you see, there is a plan to bring them into Egypt and a promise to bring them out. And God will do it through Joseph to bring them in, Moses to bring them out. Now, there is nothing that Stephen spoke about factually that the Jews would not agree, would, would not disagree. They would all agree. What they had problem with is the implication Stephen draws out from the facts. And we are going to highlight this. Look at how Stephen recounts this history concerning how God fulfilled his plan to Joseph and fulfill his promise through Moses. Okay, we will begin by looking at how God used Joseph to fulfill his plan to bring them into Egypt. We begin by looking at Acts 7, 9 to 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his households. We read this text before, but now in a different, we are looking at it from a different angle with a different focus. Now we are looking at the focus that the patriarch Joseph's brothers sold him into Egypt 
and God made him ruler over Egypt. How did Joseph get into Egypt? His brother sold him there. In other words, Joseph got into Egypt because his brothers, the forefathers of the Jews, rejected Joseph. Joseph called, was called to be God's servant, to fulfill God's plan. But his brothers rejected him. And let's see how God used Joseph to bring the patriarchs into the promised land. We look at Acts 7, 11 to 15. And there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers could not could find no food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on the first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred. And Jacob sent down, went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. So that's how God fulfilled his plan through Joseph. The brothers sold him into Egypt. God made him prime minister. And during the time of famine, there's no food in Canaan. So the brother had to come to Egypt to buy food. And that's how God's plan was fulfilled. But the emphasis that Stephen made, and I have highlighted just now, is this plan was fulfilled through their rejection. Of Joseph. If they had not rejected Joseph, Joseph would not be sold into Egypt. God's plan would not have been fulfilled. How did God fulfill his promise to bring them out? We know it's through Moses. When it was time for the promise to be fulfilled, the Israelites have multiplied and became a nation. Then came a Pharaoh to whom Joseph meant nothing. And he oppressed the Israelites. We know the story. Now, it was because of the oppression of the Pharaoh, oppression of the government, that Moses was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. And Joseph, and Moses became a prince. He was raised with a prince, educated as a prince to read and write and to know how to lead an army. Then when Moses was about 40 years old, he went out to visit his kinsmen, the Israelites, and he saw one Israelite being oppressed by an Egyptian. He went and rescued him. In the process, he killed the Egyptian. And he thought nobody knew. Then the next day, he saw two Israelites fighting. And he tried to reconcile them. And this Israelite rejected him. Say, who made you ruler and judge of us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses realized that his killing the Egyptian was no longer secret. And that means he could no longer remain in Egypt. So he fled to the wilderness, got married there, and became a shepherd there in the Mount Sinai area for 40 years. And we read about that. That's where God 
met Joseph, uh, Moses and called him to lead the Israelites out. And note, for Moses to be able to lead the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land is a huge task. The Bible says about 2 million people added up. It is not easy to lead just 10 people from one place to another place. Ask tour guides. Now you lead 2 million people across the wilderness. You need someone who have the adequate training and experience. How did God prepare Moses to fulfill his promise? to enable Moses to have the adequate training experience. Well, he became a prince. He had the education of a prince. He would have learned how to lead an army. You need uh, someone with military training who knows how to lead an army to do that. And Moses got the training. And how did he get the training? Because the government persecuted him. But he had to lead this army of Israelites across the desert. He must be familiar with the place. And he was familiar because he was shepherding flock for 40 years in the wilderness, that same wilderness. In fact, he brought the people to the same place, Mount Sinai, where God met him. He had experience. And how did he get experience? Because the Israelites rejected him. He had to flee. You see, the oppression of the government, the rejection of the people, enabled Moses to have the training and experience to fulfill God's promise. Amazing. The rejection of Joseph's brother enabled God to fulfill God's plan for Israel, the oppression of the government and the rejection of the people enable God to fulfill his promise through Moses. And this is how Stephen sums up how the people related to Moses in Acts 7, 35 to 37. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, note the emphasis. This whom they rejected is the one God sent both as ruler and redeemer. And then he said, this person who performed miracles, proving that he was sent by God, also said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, the Jews will have no problem. That was given in Deuteronomy 18. God will raise up a prophet like Moses. They had to obey him. 
by the time of Jesus, the Jews have recognized that what Moses said in Deuteronomy, uh, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, was referring to a prophet who was yet to come, most likely the Messiah. So they will have no quarrel over this. But what I like to highlight is how Stephen phrased it. He says, this man Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And that means he reinterpreted that a prophet like me, meaning a prophet who is both ruler and redeemer. And that's what Christ claimed to be, King of the Jews, Redeemer, Savior of Israel and the world. The Jews would know what Stephen was getting at. Stephen has been arguing. The messengers, the people God sent to fulfill his plan, to fulfill his promise, were consistently rejected by their forefathers. And he's implying, now God has sent that prophet promise to Moses, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who like Moses, performed miracles, who God sent as ruler and redeemer. You have rejected him. And the further implication is, your rejection actually fulfilled God's plan. You see? Christ dying on the cross is part of God's plan, Isaiah 53. Their rejection of Jesus fulfilled God's plan and God's promise for the ruler and redeemer of the world. You see how powerful this speech is? The way he argued that Jesus is the Messiah is very indirect way because he's talking to Jews who were expecting the Messiah. He's saying that those you reject turn out to be whom God sent. Jesus has done enough miracles, his resurrection. He rejected him, just like your forefathers. So far, he talked nothing about the law because part of the charges is the law. He's going to say next in Acts 7, 38 to 41. This is the one who was at Mount Sinai and received living oracles to give to, the, to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but trust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this, Moses has led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and was rejoicing in the works of their hands. So now he touches on the law. And he says, God gave through Moses living oracles. He says, what God gave through Moses was living oracles. How could he be speaking against the law? 
But what happened is he turned the table around. Let's see what he says next in Acts 7, 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so. Do you? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. You see, he was building up his case. And now he makes the conclusion. And actually, the Jews will be defenseless based on what Stephen had said, the way he recounted the history of Israel from the time God called Abraham to the time Solomon built the temple. So you see, Stephen was not interested in getting himself acquitted, but in getting the audience implicated for rejecting the Messiah. How did they respond? X 7, 54 to 56. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this point, when Stephen saw that his audience was about to pound at him, he looked in the heaven and Jesus appeared. Not in any way, in any form, but as the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw the ascended Jesus. If I remember correctly, this is the only time in the entire Bible where a human being saw the ascended Jesus at the right hand of God. Now, what is interesting is Stephen referred to Jesus as the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Of course, he was referring to Daniel, chapter 7. Only Jesus uses the title for himself. But now Stephen uses the title. Why? It means the ascension of Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel, chapter 7. Now we look at verse 13. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. In other words, Daniel said, he saw one like a son of man. A son of man means a man, a human being. One like a human being. Coming to the ancient of days, God himself. Now, why did he say one like a son of man? He obviously saw a human being. But he said, like a son of man, because, you know, in the Old Testament, the one who comes with the clouds of heaven is God. 
only God travels on the cloud of heavens. This is how uh, the pagans perceive their God. And this is how uh, the Chinese also, you look at Chinese myth, you know, uh, the, 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 the Chinese gods and, 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 and goddesses, they travel on the cloud of heaven. So, so Adriana uses those terms. So this person who is humanly coming on the clouds of heaven means God, therefore he said like a son of man. And how can a man be, be, be traveling the way God does? So in other words, there was one human being who traveled the way only God does with the cloud of heaven coming before God the ancient days before him. Now, there were even Jews, even during Jesus' time, who understood this vision to mean that there were two persons in the Godhead, but this viewpoint was considered heresy. How could they believe that there are two persons in the Godhead? There is one God, monotheism. Now what happened when this son of man, this man presented himself before God? Daniel 7, 14. The next verse. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, this man who traveled like the way God travels was given dominion, glory, kingdom, so that all peoples of all the world, nation, language will serve him, would obey him. Now, what is important is, is a son of man. Now, why did Jesus prefer to call himself son of man? And Stephen here prefer son of man? The idea that when Jesus ascended, he ascended as a human being. When he received this dominion, he received it as a human being. Jesus as God already had dominion, equal with God the Father. He did not receive any dominion and glory and kingdom. He already had it. He was son of God, God himself. He received this dominion that all people's nation and languages should serve him as a human being. In other words, the ascension of Christ brought humanity or redeemed humanity into the very presence of God to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. The ascension of Christ is a very, very important doctrine. And yet, most often, we do not know its significance. We are just focusing on this text, limiting ourselves to this, this text alone and see what the ascension of Christ means. When Christ ascended, he brought redeemed humanity into the presence of God. And as man, he represented humanity to receive a kingdom, to receive all authorities in heaven and on earth. Now, this understanding helps us to understand a number of passages in the New Testament that we would otherwise be puzzled what it means. First of all, look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. 
is often said that Matthew did not record the ascension. How come? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very familiar, the Great Commission. Now note, the Great Commission is premised upon all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How did Jesus receive all this authority? At the ascension. And the promise, I am a Jew always to the innovation. How does Jesus fulfill that? Through the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to say is this. The great commission given by Jesus, even though before he ascended, because the resurrection of Jesus and ascension comes in one package, inseparable. So even before he ascended, after the resurrection, he could say, all authority has given. In other words, this great commission assumes the ascension of Christ to receive all authority and assume the dissension of the Holy Spirit. I will be with you until the end of age. You know, Jesus kept saying, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. In other words, the dissension of the Spirit cannot happen without the ascension of Christ. It's all one package. Now, note, all authority has been given. Go therefore, go therefore. In other words, because all authority has been given in heaven and earth, go therefore. When we highlight this thought, therefore, it helps us to understand a text that otherwise will be puzzling. Matthew 10, verse 1 and 5 to 7. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans and go rather to the house, to the lordship of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why did Jesus limit them to just Gentiles, uh, to just Jews, house of Israel, not Gentiles, not even Samaritans? Give them authority over unclean spirits. Seems like there is a limit here. Now when we look at Matthew 28, go therefore to all nations, then we begin to understand. Without the ascension, the authority of the disciples will be limited to just Israel. It is only after the ascension that Jesus as man received all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, this authority could be shared. That in Jesus' name, his disciple could claim and exercise this authority that Jesus received as a man as a result of his ascension. You see, without the ascension, there could be no great commission. And why is it that without the ascension of Christ, there will be no dissension of the Holy Spirit? We know that Jesus talked about it in Gospel of John. So now we look at Gospel of John. Look at John 17, verse 5, 20 to 23. Jesus was praying. 
Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That includes all of us. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, this prayer follows what Jesus said. That unless I go to the Father, I send that the Holy Spirit will not come. And yet Jesus said, glorify me in your presence. And that will happen at the ascension. With the glory I had before he became a man. Now you know what kind of glory Jesus received as a man. What kind of glory humanity received. I like to highlight. He says, make them one. Okay, the body of Christ. We are one in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Note, he says, Father, you are in me. I in you. May they be in us. I in them and you in me. Think about it. Of course, the Spirit, the Father and the Son are in each other, the Trinity. But here it says that we may be in them because Christ is in us and he is in the Father. What does that mean? I would not dare to say this unless I read this. That the body of Christ, those of us who have repented and believed in Jesus, baptized into the body of Christ, the church, we are an extension of the Trinity. I wouldn't dare to say this unless Jesus himself said it. Right here. What does that mean? In the ascension when Christ brought redeemed humanity into the very presence of God. He united humanity with the Trinity. And therefore, only then the Holy Spirit can come and bring the presence of God into redeemed humanity and unite us into Christ that we might be in Christ through the Spirit. You see, without the ascension of Christ, there will be no dissension of the Spirit. There will be no one body of Christ. How important it is, the ascension of Christ. But what happened when Stephen's talk about seeing Jesus, that is blasphemous, standing at the right hand of God the Father. Look at how it all ended, Acts 7. 57 to 60. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped the ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the first martyrdom, Christian martyrdom. It is important to recognize that 
Jesus appeared before a human being as the ascended Lord at the right hand of God to a man only at this point in time at the first martyrdom. This is crucial, the timing. Why only at the first martyrdom? The first case means it sets the paradigm, what it is like for all future cases. Why does Jesus allow Stephen to seem ascended, exalted at the right hand of God the Father as son of man? First of all, it shows that even when God's people like Stephen being persecuted and martyred, it doesn't mean that all authority in heaven and earth is no longer true because it happened at a time when Jesus was there saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And there Stephen was martyred. Therefore, it doesn't mean when we face persecution, even martyrdom, it's no longer true that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Then what is the point of Jesus allowing his witness to be martyred? Now remember, God uses the rejection of people, persecution, oppression of government to fulfill his plan. So how does God fulfill his plan through the martyrdom of Saul? Remember in Acts 1 8, Jesus said, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Now, if you read on in Acts 8, because of this martyrdom of Stephen, persecution of the church began. You see, early on, the church was not persecuted. Only the apostles, they were stopped from preaching and so on. And now Stephen was stopped from preaching and he was martyred. And this triggered persecution of the church. And because of that, many Christians left Jerusalem, went into Judea and Samaria. The apostles stayed behind. And it's how the gospel spread to Judea and Samaria, fulfilling God's plan. You see, again, it is the persecution, the martyrdom, the rejection that fulfill God's plan. What about to the ends of the earth? Note I highlight, there was a man named Saul. Why highlight Saul in this picture? Of course, in the very next chapter, you see Saul persecuting Christian. In chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christian there. And there we know he met the Lord Jesus Christ and became a Christian and called by Jesus to preach to people to the end of the earth. But there's more to that. How does the martyrdom of Stephen fulfill God's plan for Paul to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth? In Acts 22, after Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, he was speaking to the Jews. He gave his testimony of how Jesus called him, how he met Jesus on the way to Damascus and so on. And then he said, when he returned to Jerusalem, 
Jesus appeared to him in a trance, telling him to hurriedly leave Jerusalem. And Paul kind of uh, reluctantly, he, he told Jesus, you see, these people knew my life. They knew how I persecuted the Christian. They even knew I was there when Stephen was martyred. So he was saying, well, these Jews knew what I was like and now they have changed. It will be persuasive to them to see that I don't change easily, not like these other Jews who believe in Jesus easily. I don't believe easily. I persecuted them. I changed. That means there must be something. He thought he, he, thought he would be persuasive. He was wrong. The Jews look at him as a hero before this. And now he looked at him as a traitor. They won't listen to him. Jesus said, they won't listen to you. And even though he tried to persuade Jesus to change Jesus, my Jesus said, no, you go. I will send you to the Gentiles. You see, it was because of this martyrdom of Stephen that resulted in the persecution. And Paul was involved in this persecution because of the martyrdom of Stephen. And because of the persecution that Paul was involved in, the Jews would not listen to him. So he had to go to the Gentiles. You see, again, how God used the martyrdom of Stephen to fulfill his plan that the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth through the Apostle Paul. At this point, when Stephen is martyred, Jesus appeared to him, standing at the right hand of God, also served the purpose to assure Stephen and all of us that not only my all authority has been given to me, it's not true. The promise I'm with you always is also true. When we are persecuted, when we are martyred, the promise I am with you always is still true. Stephen set that paradigm, that standard. Just as Jesus told Thomas, you believe because you saw me, but more blessed are those who believe who did not see. Stephen was blessed at his martyrdom that he saw Jesus ascended, extending that promise of Jesus. He said, more blessed are those who believe when they did not see the ascended Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Behold, I am with you always. Let us pray. Our oh, Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for preserving this speech of Stephen. To help us understand your purpose and your plan and how you go about fulfilling your purpose and your plan. Speak to our hearts, Lord and show us the relevance of Acts 7 in our life today, in our church today, here in Malaysia. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.